Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. But by the way, the title of my sermon today is Flip It on Its Head. Because we will see that happening through the disciples of Jesus here in this section of the second missionary journey. But we're also going to look more keenly into the missionary journey and look at some of the details here. So what, what we're reading right now in verses 1 and 2 is what I'm showing on this slide right here. And so it says, now when they had passed through Amphipolis, where were they? They were in Philippi. Right? And so as they go from Philippi, they go to Amphipolis and Apollonia. Then they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom. That's a helpful phrase too. And on three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures. So just a, a simple map, a simple phrase. You might read this and just pass by it and not give it much more of a thought and think that it's nothing more than a travel log. But in order for these conditions to exist, God had to move Western civilization over the course of 600 plus years in order to see these conditions to be just right. And these conditions being just right, and it's right around this time and on this section of the journey that Paul would write these, write these words. That he's just leaving Galatia. If, if you kind of look over to the right of this screen, he left Galatia, entered into Macedonia because there was a vision of a man saying, come on over here, come on over here. And when he left Galatia and he came over here to what we're seeing on, on the screen here, this is what he wrote. He wrote at just the right time. And, and I'm probably shortchanging the depth of what he wrote there. Really what he says is, when time had reached its overflowing fullness. So in other words, when the conditions were overflowingly right, perfect storm time, then God sent his son, born under the law, born of a virgin, and brought him into the great explosion of love that is about to happen. But it doesn't happen until all of these conditions are just right. So let me read on. This is just the, the, the framing of this. But let's look at now what, what happens here in Thessalonica. And again, Paul went into the Sabbath, into the synagogue on the Sabbath, three Sabbaths in a row, three weeks. He's in there reasoning, kind of back and forth, dialoguing, Socratic method type stuff. And as he continues in this kind of um, uh, dialectical approach to, to teaching, it says he was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. Amen. Saying, this Jesus who I proclaim to you is the Christ. To that audience, there are Jews and there are Greeks in there. They're hearing something that would cause their jaw to drop. They are having to be convinced through a very deep debate and very expert back and forth dialogue that the one that we've been studying in these scriptures, the Messiah or the Christ, the one that is to come, the great deliverer on whom all our hopes are pinned, I'm here at just the right time under these conditions to tell you it's Jesus. And this Messiah 
is you don't know the half of them. As a matter of fact, he died and he rose. Probably they said, what do you mean he died and he rose? Where do you get that from the scriptures? And then he, had, then he went into the scriptures to show, no, it was mandatory, absolutely necessary in order for us to have redemption, in order for us to have new life. It was necessary for him on our behalf to die for us and to raise again so that we could have not just a Messiah, so that we could have a mind-blowing deliverer. And his name is Jesus. And get ready because I'm bringing him your way. And, and this, this is what happens in all of these synagogues along the way with Paul. And, and again, just the right time. Verse 4, And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. And listen to this. As did a great number, a great many of devout Greeks and not a few leading women. Which means that this synagogue was filled not with ju just Jews, but this synagogue was filled with the Greeks or the pagans that were kind of pressing their nose up against the glass, wondering, what are those Jewish folks in there reading about? What are they looking at? That, wow, that, that looks like something so far beyond what we understand among our gods. Uh, we want to know more about this. So this is the conditions what Paul arrives into, Jews that are earnestly seeking with a bunch of Greeks that are also saying, man, I want some of that. Whatever it is that they're having, I want some of that. And then Paul arrives and says, hey, by the way, what I'm telling you about all of this goes way beyond even what the Jews were hoping for. And it was always meant not just for you Jews that are here, but for all of you Gentiles that are out there on the edges. It's meant for you as well. It landed in just the perfect condition at just the right time. And there was an, a groundswell of astounding response and the world began to change. And astoundingly, the Roman Empire throughout all of the, the, the Mediterranean basin, the entire world view absolutely flipped on its head in one generation. Amen. When stuff like that happens, it doesn't just happen without an equal and opposite reaction. Verse 5, But the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they couldn't find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down. Don't you love that phrase? These men who have turned the world upside down. Uh, the, the word there is, um, is, is the word to stand, but to stand and then flip it. So it's, it's literally it's this idea that people who have flipped the world on its head. Everywhere they've gone, they've caused this kind of an uproar. And you know what? If we're really sharing the gospel of Jesus, there's no way anything but that could be the result. Who have turned the world upside down, they've come here too. They're here. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. So really what the Jews are doing is they're just pandering to the kind of the Greco-Romans in the audience and saying, you know how, you know, yeah, we're, we're, we're kind of into Yahweh and all, but you're into Caesar. Well, guess what? These guys are also saying that Jesus not only blows our minds, but he also absolutely has sovereignty over your Caesar. So deal with that. And, and of course, they're just saying this to try to get the crowd to, to um, have a a mob mentality against these guys. 
Verse 8, And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Let me read one more verse just to show this pattern here. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night. Where? To Berea, the next stop on this road. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, I want to I want to zoom in on just this dynamic here that, again, at the surface could look like a travel log, but oh no, when you unpack this, you realize the brilliance, the sovereignty, and also the long-term vision of your God. They land in Philippi where they have fruitful labor with Lydia, with the Philippian jailer, with the slave girl, with the town, with the, the, the Roman retirees. All, all of that happens in Philippi and it's pretty wonderful. Then they set off and about a day's journey on foot. And if you're hoofing it over this terrain, giving it all you got, you can go about 30 miles. So they go about 30 miles to Amphipolis. Amphipolis is no small town. It's actually uh, quite a considerable city along the way. But what's not there? There's no synagogue. Yeah. So Paul decides, mm, not quite the super ripe conditions that we've been looking for. So he stays the night there, goes another 30 miles, which takes him to Apollonia. Again, quite a considerable city, but no synagogue and goes another 30 miles. And so then finally on this third day, he, he arrives in Thessalonica, which is a, 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 a capital city. Uh, but more importantly than the size of each of these cities, in Thessalonica, there is a synagogue, an incubator waiting for Jesus, waiting for the message that, that Paul is about to bring, waiting for the seed to land on this fertile soil to produce a 30, 60, 100-fold effect that it's about to have. Now, what's interesting is when they, in a sense, by mob rule, get kicked out of town and hide under the cover of night and get, while well, the getting is good, they make their way over to Berea and, as was his custom, ended up again at another synagogue where next, next week we'll be able to hear that message from, from Tim uh, on that. But for right now, I want us to recognize that what has happened here is no small thing. You've got all around the Mediterranean basin, these synagogues filled with seeking Jews that are not in Jerusalem anymore. Right? I mean, we, we can't you know, just negate that fact. That had to happen somehow. Somehow they got ousted out of Jerusalem, scattered all over the Roman Empire, and ended up in these synagogues, and they're reading scriptures that are translated into the language that everybody else understands. These are not Hebrew scrolls that they're reading. They're reading Greek scrolls, which would have been the, the English of, of that day. English is kind of the, the universal language today. At that time, it would have been Greek. It wasn't Latin. It wasn't Hebrew. It was Greek. All through the Roman Empire at this point in time, it was Greek. And, and so everything that was of, of import was in Greek. And so they have, in all of these far-flung synagogues, scrolls written in Greek, and they're preaching in Greek. And not only do they have Jews now sitting there, they've got Greek-speaking Romans and Greeks that are crowding in, wanting to see what's going on here. And not only that, but Paul is traveling along the most famous ancient road. The most famous ancient road is not the Via Della Rosa. Uh, it is the Via Ignatio, 
the, the Ignatian Way. Uh, and, and that is the exact road. And that road is Main Street in Thessalonica. And it is likewise Main Street in Berea and in Philippi. Uh, and so they're, they're going down this road, which takes them right through Philippi, right through Thessalonica, and right through Berea. Again, a road is, yeah, to us, yeah, big deal, it's a road. I don't know, sometimes when I'm driving down the road, I actually just thank God that, that I can drive in a car. Yesterday I had to go to Philadelphia for a meeting at camp. And I think, thank you, God, that I can do this. Like, imagine schlepping all the way up the, the eastern shore after swimming across instead of having the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and Hell, getting all the way to, to Philadelphia and they, they kind of turn around and making that journey. You know, I, I'd be gone two months, but, but, but we, have, we have all of this. But, but same thing with Paul. He, he wouldn't be able to make this journey as quickly as he did. He's, he's not a young man at this point as he's completing his missionary's journeys. He's in his 60s. And, and, but, but, but able to do these things because all these conditions exist. And as he writes, I think traveling down this road, going into synagogue after synagogue with a whole bunch of not just Jews but Greeks waiting for it, he writes, wow. It wasn't until the time was just right. Amen. Just right that God sent his son, born of a virgin, born under the law, to save us from our sins. The realization of that must have been really marvelous for him. But he also would have realized that it would have come about of ripe time with a 600 plus year perspective. But let me show you why. This is 600 and 50 years earlier, a vision comes to the most powerful man on earth at the time. His name is Nebuchadnezzar, and he has this dream. And the dream is a statue, head of gold, chest, shoulders of, of uh, uh, silver, belly of bronze, and, and legs and feet of, of iron and clay. Uh, all right, so four distinct parts to this statue, head of gold, silver, bronze, iron. And he wakes up and is quite astounded by the dream. Doesn't know what to make of it. Calls in all of his magicians, all of his magi. The, the, the technical name for all of the wise men of Babylonia in our, in our Greek Bible is magi. So he calls in all the magi. And who's the head magi? Daniel. And Daniel writes, as, as he writes his prophecy, chapter 2, you can join me there. In verse 24, Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, Hey, don't, don't kill all these people because they can't tell you. I got this. Matter of fact, I don't have this, but God's got this. So, so he says in the middle of um, verse 24, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Verse 25, Ariok brought Daniel before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able? Later on, Daniel says, I am able. And, and then in verse 29, he says, To you, O king, as you lay in bed, came thoughts of what would, after the, that would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. So this is a this is a prophecy. The statue is of, of future events. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the other, but because the interpretation may be known to you, king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. 
You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, chest and arms of silver, metal and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet partly of iron, partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay, broke them to pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold, all together with broken pieces, became like chaff of the summer th uh, threshing floor. Wind carried them away. Not a trace of it could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Uh, and then he says, now here's the dream. By the way, Nebuchadnezzar, who's no fool, said to his wise men, I'm not going to tell you my dream because you're going to make up some sort of bogus, you know, oh, you know what? The gold is um, the gold is your beauty and your love. And the, the, the silver is your kindness and the bronze is your patience. Hey, I, I don't want any of that. I'm not going to tell you the dream. You tell me the dream and then tell me the interpretation. And they're all like, ah, oh, humana, 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 humana. Nobody can do that. Good, off with your heads. And that's when Daniel steps in and tells him not only the dream, which is, that's the big part here, is that he was able to tell him the dream. But now he's like, okay, now let me educate you a little bit here, Neb. You, O king, the king of kings, verse 37, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, beasts of the field, birds of the heavens, making you rule over them. You are the head of gold. In other words, Babylon is represented by the head of gold. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the, toe, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay, partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw it mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly of iron, partly of clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong, partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, they will be mixed with one another. Uh, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, the king of heaven will set up a kingdom... That shall never be destroyed. Hallelujah. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw the stone that was cut from the mountain by no human hand. It broke to pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold. And a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Now, here's the amazing thing of all of this. This happened in 7th century BC. This is a good bit away, right? So all of this is of amazing predictive value, and it goes down the way. This is not up to interpretation. Matter of fact, later, Daniel will actually name the name of the second and the third kingdoms. He names Babylon, and then by verses 7 and 8, he will name what the kingdom of silver is, that is Persia, Medo-Persia. And the third kingdom, uh, swift as a, as, as a leopard, uh, will be named as Greece. He names them then. Is this amazing? Yeah. And, and it goes down as is said. First is Babylon. Why Babylon? I'll get to that in a minute. Why Babylon need to rise in order to end up with a synagogue on an Ignatian street uh, over in North Greece? 
Why, why Babylon for that? Also, why Persia? Why Greece? Why Rome? In order for all of that to happen. Because God was so carefully preparing the time when his kingdom comes, like a little rock cut out of a, a mountain that rolls and crushes every other kingdom under heaven. Crushes even the great superpowers that, that, that have existed and sets itself up as ultimate sovereignty and its kingdom will never end. And Paul realizes what I'm doing as I go from town to town, place to place, is I am helping to establish nothing less than that. So inspiring. And for us to just read Acts 17 verse 1 and not appreciate all of this is to shortchange what God had to do in order for all of these conditions to be so perfectly ripe. So again, just to give you a bit of Western Civ real quick here, uh, we have Babylon as the superpower uh, in the 600s of BC into the mid 500s BC. But then in a bloodless coup, the Medo-Persian Empire, or Persia, rises and supplants Babylon. We'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. And you can see the dates there from uh, 500 BC all the way until the time of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great is the son of Philip of Macedonia. We happen to be in Macedonia in Acts chapter 17. Uh, and, and then comes Greece. Greece then rules and is the superpower that eclipses all of these lands, all of it with all of its rule from 330 BC to 164 BC. And then finally, bah, 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 Rome, uh, Rome arises 164 BC and, and brings us into the time of the New Testament that, that we'll look at in just a moment. All right. And finally, though, comes the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God in this manner. Now, the kingdom of God always exists, by the way. If we're talking the kingdom of God is the sovereignty of God, the dominion of God, well, always. But in terms of it being more clearly manifested, well, that happens at this moment that Daniel predicts. And this happens when the time is ripe, as, as Paul describes. So let's, let's look at the first thing that needs to happen. And why Babylon? Why Babylon at all? Because... Israel was a hot mess. Israel had forsaken the word of God. Again, God had a covenant with his people. This could have been the deliverance for all nations. That was his original plan. But Israel grew stiff-necked, hard-hearted, ungrateful, and began to ignore the word of God. Through Jeremiah, the prophet who predicts that Nebuchadnezzar is going to come, and, and, and bring judgment upon Israel. Uh, Jeremiah says, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I didn't just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command and it'll go well with you. But they didn't listen. They didn't pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backwards, not forwards. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, here today, 600 BC, as Nebuchadnezzar's at the door, by the way, as Jeremiah is writing this. Day and again, I sent you my servants, but you didn't pay attention. Listen to me. You are a stiff-necked people. You're more evil than your ancestors. And then he says to Jeremiah, don't, don't make sacrifice for them. My will has already been determined. 
and chastisement will come upon them. So what happens? Nebuchadnezzar comes in and he demolishes all the kingdom of Israel, takes the people absolutely humbled, humiliated, hooks in their noses and brings them into exile up this path around north to Syria and back over to Babylon and rips them out of their pride, their homeland, their promised land, and puts the, the whole lot of them over in Babylon. So what, you say, how does that get us to a synagogue with Jews and Gentiles on the Ignatian Way over in Thessalonica? Well, the first thing that God had to do is to get his people to care about the word of God again. This is exactly what happens as we read through the prophets. The, the very time, even, even today as historians look at Israel, the time where the law sprang to life and became dear to their hearts, where they became zealous at studying every bit of the law and really incorporating it into their lives, it happened in Babylon. Because they didn't have sacrifices anymore. They didn't have a temple. They didn't have the, the outward things to distract them. All they had were their scrolls. And so they formed what were called synagogues, or places where you come together to learn. It's literally what synagogue means. Uh, so they, they formed synagogues over in Babylon. So good. Now we've got God's people who are zealous for his word, wanting the ultimate deliverance that he promises, and they form synagogues. Well, that's fine, but those synagogues are over there. How are they going to get everywhere so that everybody has a chance to hear the gospel. Well, that's what comes next. And again, the, the law in, in the synagogue there, and, and this was a Hebrew Bible that they had. What comes next? And this is so cool. This is called the Cyrus Cylinder. Uh, this is early archaeological evidence for King Cyrus of Persia. Why is he a big deal? Because there is a supplanting of Babylon by Persia it was a, a political thing. In, in doing so, Isaiah even predicts it in Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. What's amazing is Isaiah not only predicts that Cyrus will come to power and rearrange the world powers from Babylon to Persia, but he predicts it and names Cyrus by name. Right? I mean, it's one thing for Babe Ruth to point to the outfield bleachers, but Isaiah... 180 years before Cyrus takes the throne, 150 years before he was born, writes of him at the end of Isaiah 44 and the beginning of Isaiah 45. And says, Cyrus will rise up. He will be my servant. And Cyrus has a policy of, of greater leniency. And under Persia, the captives that are by the rivers of Babylon are allowed to go back. They're they allowed to go back to Jerusalem but they're allowed to go back really wherever they want. And where they go is they go back to Jerusalem, but it's the great dispersion of the synagogues. That synagogue system became so dear to their hearts, they took it and went all over the known world and established this, thanks to Cyrus. What was concentrated in Babylon then exploded all around the Mediterranean basin and was waiting, waiting for the Messiah as they studied the scriptures. But we still have more to go. Because in every one of those synagogues, there were Hebrew Bibles. 
And in every one of those synagogues, it was a, a very closed system where it was just Jews. So something else happens, and it's this guy. Anybody who knows who this guy is? Alexander, Alexander the Great. Yes. Uh, and again, he, he grew up uh, right in between Thessalonica and Philippi, just by the way. And uh, under his dad was Philip of Macedonia. But he rose to power. He was a, a student of Aristotle, which is just as important. And as a student of Aristotle, the thing that he loved was Greek culture. And he wanted all the world to have access to all the great books of ancient civilization. So he had all the lands where he conquered bring together all of their collective wisdom and he, and he appointed scholars to translate those. This resulted in the great Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Again, it, it happened by the, the mid three, third century BC. So by about 250 BC, you now had in all of those synagogues, Bibles being studied by Jews, but now everybody in those synagogues spoke Greek and read in Greek. So every, every one of these spots now, if we zoom in on them, we now see not a Hebrew Bible, but now we have in every one of these synagogues, Greek Bibles and Greek speakers. You know what that does? It makes the word of God accessible to the population outside the synagogue. And when that happens, the population outside the synagogue starts to get attractive. Because if you compare any writings of any ancient religion to the justice, the social justice, the fairness, the beauty, the love of God that you see in the Hebrew Bible, which is translated into Greek, by the way, no contest. So it's no wonder that throngs of outsiders begin to be hangers-on and very devout hangers-on. Devout God-fearers is their title as they now are pushing into these synagogues wanting to hear and really starting to look forward to the Messiah just as the Jews are as well. So that's pretty good, right? we got some pretty good conditions with all of these far-flung little centers of seekers available now with a language that everyone can understand, a Bible that everyone can understand, but they still need to be connected somehow. Because in the ancient world, to take a walk from Amphipolis to Apollonia is taking your life in your hands. It's Wild West times a hundred. I mean, you were, you were at the mercy. As you went down a road, if there was a road, uh, you were lucky to make it to your next destination. And so the big deal is, is that now all of these little learning centers with Greek accessible Bibles and hangers on from the general population, they're all there waiting. Conditions are really becoming really ripe now. And all God had to do was use Babylon, Persia, and Greece. But he's not done because he now needs to bring order to the world. And that order is known very famously as the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome. And the fourth kingdom that Daniel says is going to rise up, rises up and especially is made known through Augustus Caesar. And right before the birth of Christ, Augustus Caesar, in securing his reign, is able to establish as the greatest administrator of the ancient world, peace and under that peace, rather than having to deploy all of their martial resources, now they get to take all of those military resources and put them towards building infrastructure. 
And what they do is they clean up the, the seas of pirates. They clean up the roadways of bandits. And more importantly, they build the roadways. So underneath the Pax Romana, right before the birth of Jesus, right before and for the next 150 years after, you then have this massive scale of building connectors between all of these places that God has dotted all around the ancient world, waiting for the fullness of time, and now they're all connected. But how cool is God that he, in his sovereignty, is able to just kind of move Babylon, move Persia, bring in Greece, use Rome. This is mind-boggling of just how massively powerful God is, how brilliant he is, and how long-term his plan has always been. And now with all of these things at, at just the right place, with all of this, now we have Paul walking into Thessalonica. And for three days, Abel, I have goosebumps as I'm saying this, for three days to reason with this crowd, a crowd that would be not only here, but in all those points on the map, able to get there safely over, over the main street road that connects all of the Roman Empire, able to go across the sea without fear of, of, of pirates, able to go into synagogues where people know the word of God because it's in their language and it's been spread all around the world with people who love the word of God now because they got ripped out of their homeland and their complacency and were renewed that they actually desired the word of God, that God worked all those conditions through Babylon, through Persia, through Greece, and now through Rome. But now as Rome is here, the rock, the rock begins to roll and heads towards all that man sets up as power. And as this statue stands, literally the same word that is used for upending, standing on its head, all of the world, as this statue stands, that rock strikes the statue, doesn't just flip it on its head, but abolishes it so it becomes like dust, so that it, it just scatters to nowhere. As Isaiah uh, 40 also says, the, the nations are like dust on the scales. On my, my Facebook page, you know, under political views, I put that quote from Isaiah. Political views, the nations are but dust on the scales. Big deal. But we are, but we are of the kingdom of God. And it's at this time that God decides with all of these conditions that it only took him, Nebuchadnezzar, Cyrus, Alexander the Great, and Caesar Augustus, Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. That's all he had to use. But with all of that, then, with conditions just right, he sends the greatest blast of love we could ever imagine. Amen. Jesus. Jesus arrives. The gospel is presented. The word of God is fulfilled. And now with everything just right, Paul is able to walk out of Philippi, walk into Thessalonica, walk into Berea, go later on down into Athens, and absolutely change the world in such a short period of time that it is mind-boggling. But this, this is God's great plan. And just to show off, by the way, Daniel is known as, in the Greek Bible, his title is Chief Magi. But when the set time had come, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to set us free. Again, at just this right time, 
God showing off, he sends the disciples of the disciples of the disciples of the disciples of Daniel. Magi from the east, from Babylon. Those that had studied under Daniel and under that person and that person and that person, they show up where? At this event. When Jesus is born under the law, born under a virgin. Just in case you're wondering, God just got lucky. No, he didn't just get lucky. The scriptures and Isaiah just got lucky. Jeremiah just got lucky in what he predicted. No, God had a set plan. He had a dearest of all desires to gather his creation, his people, not just the Jews, but all people to know him, to know his love, then to send the explosion of love through Jesus. And by the way, for us, I think we've got to recognize the civilizations that God has set up to make it so full for us to be able to share the gospel. You live in cul-de-sacs and subdivisions. You are in workplaces where people are gathered together with discretionary time to talk at a water cooler. We, we, we have universities where people are gathered, military bases where, where people are gathered. We have all of these conditions that are here for us, just as they were there for Paul and Silas as they went into Thessalonica. And when they arrived, they turned the world upside down, not because of how awesome they were. They turned the world upside down because they brought Jesus. Amen. Jesus unfiltered. Not a compromise of Jesus. Jesus unfiltered. And my charge for us here in Virginia Beach, north and south Virginia Beach, let's turn this place on its head. Let's turn it upside down. It's not your great effort. God has already got you. He's been arranging this for centuries. You're not running against the wind. You're running downhill with the wind according to God's will. You're doing His will. He's arranged it all already. This emboldens me like nothing I can tell you to, to know that I'm in wonderful alignment with the will of God. And so as my final charge, you can hit the button. What a time to end. There we go. I don't need pity applause. <laughs> As a final charge, Coastal, South Beach, you're part of God's amazing plan. That's right. And you're doing it in just the right time, at the fullness of time. Let's bring Jesus. Let's bring Jesus and see the way that he flips everything on its head. Let Jesus come out of your mouth every day this week to somebody that needs to know Jesus unfiltered. Somebody that needs to know Jesus with an uncompromised version of Christianity. Let's know that we are in the great long timeline of tradition that is the will of God and we get to be part of something so far beyond all of us. Let's turn it upside down. We're dismissed to fellowship. Coastal, we do have a leaders meeting in about 15 minutes. Amen. Thank you.